Hello and welcome to Life Learnings. I'm Barry Harker. Last time on Life Learnings I spoke with Louise English from Auckland, New Zealand. Louise is the author of Happiness in His Eyes, a story of love and disability. Happiness in His Eyes is Louise's story of the first seven years bringing up her son Kevin, a child with special needs. It's a wonderful book, beautifully written, that captures the roller coaster life that is the reality for parents and siblings when a child with a disability comes into the family. Louise brought us up to date about life with Kevin, who is now 11. But there were a number of things that we didn't get the chance to talk about. So I invited Louise to record a second conversation with me. Today is part two of my conversation with Louise. If you didn't hear the first conversation, Kevin was diagnosed with autism at 13 months, and over the next five years, Louise and Michael and Matthew, Kevin's older brother, were forced to adjust to additional obstacles including epilepsy and a life radically different from that which they had ever imagined. Today, we'll begin by talking about some of the photographs in Happiness in His Eyes. Later, I'll be talking with Louise about her own early life and experiences. Louise, would you like to just talk to me about some of the beautiful photos in this mm, book? Sure. I cherish the photos in the book. My husband took many of the photos. Michael's good at photography and he's got the patience needed to get photos of Kevin because it's not very often that Kevin actually looks at a camera. And I really valued Michael's contribution to the book in this way. I particularly love the cover photo. Kevin's just so happy there. He likes being in the sand and feeling the texture of it. And it was that photo that actually was the inspiration for the title of the book. Kevin's smiling there. Yeah, it's a lovely smile. A beautiful smile. smile. Yeah, I just really enjoy looking at that photo. And mostly, not always, but mostly photos are taken of good times. It's a bit like the DVDs. And so they serve as a reminder of really positive, happy times. There's a beautiful photo here of Matthew when he's three years of age with Kevin and he's only three weeks. Yeah, at that stage we had no idea that there were any developmental issues with Kevin and it was, um, you know, it was sort of a time of excitement for us with this new baby. Actually it was a very challenging time too because Michael had just had major heart surgery when Kevin was two and a half weeks old, so it was horrendously stressful. But that particular photo, um, it just shows the joy, I guess, of our little boy holding his baby brother. And there's a picture there of Kevin when he's eight weeks old. Yes. You had no idea of the challenges that were ahead of you, did you? No, it was at about that stage that Kevin had a few very fleeting seizures. It wasn't the not the first one that I described in our earlier interview, but just very brief episodes of his eyes rapidly moving from side to side and his limbs twitching. And they start at about six or seven weeks, and it was those first few incidents that um, were the first signal that something might be amiss. And there's a photo there of Matthew trying to help Kevin sit up. Yeah, I mean, Matthew's a slight build, and... Kevin was a very big, solid, heavy baby, mm -hmm. <laughs> and Kevin's really just toppling over onto Matthew there. And there's one taken on uh, Kevin's first birthday. Yeah, I think that's an interesting one because it just shows how Kevin's eyes often looked at the time with a real staring, fixed 
nature about them, not the usual reciprocal, responsive um, look that you expect from children at that age. Now, Kevin had to go through some other challenges, didn't he? There was the issue around um, his head or the shape of his head and um, some corrective actions you needed to take around that. Yeah, well, Tell me a, about that. He, um, he just preferred to keep his head in one position when he was sleeping, which is actually very common for babies. And so over time, the shape of his skull altered because of the position that he liked to rest in and you know the bones are still so soft at that stage that they are very malleable and we tried very intently to position him in a certain way and keep him resting in a certain way but he was still adamant and his head is still a little bit odd shaped but doesn't matter. Hmm. There's another one here with Michael playing with uh, Matthew and Kevin's sitting off, really not showing very much interest. No, that was very representative of how play was. Michael engages beautifully in playing with Matthew and attempted to include Kevin, and Kevin just sat there and didn't really look. And it's been like that numerous times. I remember taking him to the zoo, which is not a cheap outing, but he was more interested in the bright-coloured rubbish bins than any of the animals and <laughs> sights that we were to see there. There's another one here with Matthew uh, attempting to play with Kevin, Kevin's one, and it's very poignant because Matthew's trying to play with him, but there's no response. No, that's right. He was trying to engage Kevin with a toy, and as was so often the case, Kevin just looked around and didn't show interest, didn't know what to do with the toy, didn't respond. And there's another one here with um, you and Matthew and uh, Kevin in Cornwall Park. Tell oh, me about that. I love Cornwall Park. It's one of my favourite places in Auckland. Beautiful big reserve. Sir Logan Campbell donated that land to Auckland many years ago. He was a man with foresight to do that and it's a favourite spot with Aucklanders. I'm not sure whether Kevin's laughing there or, or crying. What's happening there? Let's have a look. Oh yes, he's laughing. He enjoys buggy rides and he was being pushed around Enjoying the fresh air and time out. And then there's another one with uh, Megan oh, at Megan. the local pool. Beautiful Megan was our very first carer to help with Kevin. And she started when she was about 15. She was still at school. And at that stage, we were paying her just one or two hours a week to just come and specifically play with Kevin so I could have a little bit of time dedicated to Matthew. And she stayed with us for many years right through school. She decided because of her work with Kevin to do occupational therapy and she stayed right through her training and even beyond. And it's still a very special friendship that we have. And there's a lovely one of Kevin in the water. It's an underwater shot. He loves the water and unlike most children he was quite happy to go under the water. We could never get goggles on him and so he'd go under the water and he didn't seem to be too bothered by the chlorine and he'd open his eyes. And um, His eyes are open here yeah. and he's clearly enjoying the yeah, experience. loved the water. Still does. Well, he still does if it's warm. He's gone off our cooler New Zealand beach waters. Another lovely pensive shot of Kevin in the cubby house. That Michael yeah. had built for him. Michael and my dad and one of my brothers helped build that cubby house. And Matthew and I spent many hours playing in the cubby house. Kevin, not so much, but uh, he'd go in there sometimes. And then there's one of Alison. This is Kevin's educational support worker. 
Oh, she was delightful. And in fact, our relationship goes back many years. And then she actually worked with Kevin for a time, maybe a year. And she was just wonderful with him. And there's a photo of Kevin and his nana. This is Gail Inglis. This is Matthew. Uh, this is Michael's yes. mother, I imagine. Yes. Gail and Bruce live in Australia and come and visit us as often as they can and are always lovely with the children. And here's one with Matthew pushing Kevin. Kevin's about five here. And it looks like he's getting a fast ride. Yeah, yeah, Matthew uh, gave him some adventurous rides in the stroller sometimes. Now, the beaches seem to feature in your book a lot. <laughs> Probably because I like the beaches so much. What a poo, where is that? Well, we would pronounce it more with a f sound than a wh sound. Fotapu is out at the Manukau Heads, beautiful, remote, rugged, wild beach that I like to go out and just walk in the bush and walk along the beach and rejuvenate. Mm, lovely photo of you and Michael there. Yes. And then one with um, Kevin and his grandpa, Bruce Inglis, on the yes. beach. Yes, yes, another... Does he like the beach? Does Kevin he like the beach? He likes playing in the sand more than he likes the water now. He used to enjoy the water, but he's gone off cold water. And uh, But he does like to roll around in the sand and feel the sand and maybe eat the sand. And, and you've got one here where you're saying that he likes to be lifted, swung, spun, nearly any sort of movement. And this is on the beach too. Yeah, I can't lift him and swing him now like I used to, but he does still like spinning actions. And there's one with your mother, Robin, enjoying Matarangi Beach. Yeah, mum and dad have a holiday home at Matarangi and we've had many happy holidays there and mum spends a lot of time with Kevin and playing with him. Now here's one with Matthew showing Kevin how to use his new toy, but Kevin seems to be more engaged there. Yeah, and, and this is actually a really sad thing that we're dealing with at the moment is that photos and video of Kevin in the past show how much more engaged he was able to be and he's had so many seizures and so many anti-epileptic drugs that his cognitive ability and his interaction is clearly declining and we don't see so much interaction now you spent a lot. You spent a lot of time with um, Kevin helping him to do things and to, and, and to point to things and so forth and there's this wonderful photo here with Kevin with your mother and he's pointing to her in the photo. Yeah, that was really a special moment for Mum. It was Christmas morning and we opened presents and one of them was a large family photo and Kevin was sitting with Mum and immediately pointed to her and it, it didn't seem to be at all coincidental. It seemed that he actually knew that he was pointing to his nana who was, he was sitting next to. And what impact did that photo have on you? Obviously, your mother's very happy. Oh, those sort of moments, I cherish them. I really do. Now, tell me about this new tricycle. Ah, oh, that was a great invention that one of my clever cousins designed. Steve um, has got great skills, and he knew how much I like cycling. I've always liked cycling. And when Kevin got too big to just put in a child's seat behind um immediately behind me on a regular bike we got a kind of a trailer bike that he would sit in and then after a while he grew out of that too and Stephen designed this trike with two large wheels at the back and and one at the front and then we hooked it up to the back of my bike so I could tow him 
like he was on a trailer. And because it was a trike, Kevin was stable enough to stay on there. And I did all the pulling and the peddling, but at least we still got to be outside cycling. Now, there's a few photos here of some of his more respectable messes. <laughs> What's aqueous cream? Oh, He's I... in a bath and he has it all over him. Any parent who has a child with eczema will know all about the various creams and potions that are required to manage the eczema. And Kevin just likes tactile experiences. And we have had a lot of messes over the years, and we still need to call on our local carpet cleaner sometimes and spend a lot of time cleaning up his messes, although not so many now that we have carers in our home more often. Now there's a picture here of your shower recess and it's just got lots of clothes in it. I think I may have left, I actually don't remember clearly, but I think I may have left Kevin in the shower fleetingly and uh, uh, that's what happened. So he stripped off in the shower or he just put the... Just the, dragged his clothes dragged in, he's not able to undress shower. himself Now what's fully, Compland? There's one here with Compland. Oh, Compland is a, a milk powder supplement drink that um, yeah, just gives you a good balanced drink when you need it and it's very sticky in carpet when it's wet. Yes, and it's, I'm not sure whether it's on the carpet. It looks like it is on yeah, the carpet. Yeah, it was actually. all over the carpet and milk stinks when it's in carpet. And what about the one with Marmite? Uh, he's got Marmite. It'd make a good ad for face. sanitarium, wouldn't it? It would. <laughs> <laughs> and then there's the lovely one here with um, Kevin running. He's smiling and he's between your parents and they're in Twin Oak Drive, Cornwall Park. Yeah, back at Cornwall Park. We love to walk around there and it was such a pleasure for me when Kevin started walking. You know, I've often remembered back to what the paediatrician said about the possibility that he may not walk and there to see him running was very special. He doesn't run very ably or very far, but particularly with the support there between my parents, he managed to run very effectively. Thank you for just sharing your, your thoughts and um, giving us a bit of a description of these, uh, these beautiful photos. And that it? last photo I must comment on, my sister-in-law Annalise took that photo and we have tried a couple of times over the years to have studio photos unsuccessfully. Kevin doesn't really look at the camera and he certainly doesn't sit still for very long and I think it was Annalise who suggested perhaps an action photo would be more appropriate. So that's walking in Totra Park in Auckland, and I think it's a beautiful photo it that is a beautiful she's managed photo, to capture. Actually. It's a very beautiful photo. So do you have another book in mind? People often ask me if I have another book in mind, and I must say the process feels more daunting than ever. Previously, when I wrote Happiness in His Eyes, Kevin's epilepsy was less severe, and I was working significantly less, and so I had more time available for writing. Now I'm very much busier, and I just, I'm really pressed for time, and I do miss the writing. I would like to write more, but I'm mostly just trying to keep up with what feels essential. So I guess the answer is possibly, but not in the immediate future. One thing that I have recognised that I would need to do, though, is 
some sort of journal entries because I couldn't have written this book without all those journal entries. And in fact, your question has prompted me and question of a friend asking if I'll write another book to finally familiarise myself with how to do voice recording on my phone because there are often times that I think of snippets I would like to recall and I just don't get the time to write them down. So I hope to actually start voice I'd like recording to, those. I'd like to encourage you to write, Louise, because I think um, a second book would be really good because you've given us significant information today that's not in the book. And uh, what about another one after that so that you're dealing with you know, his teenage years yes. and then perhaps his life as an adult? Yeah, I hope I do get to do that. I, I do see the value in sharing that with others. I think that would be a really useful contribution to the international literature actually mm. on disability to have sequential stories yes. around his around his life and Thank the impact you. on him yes. and also the impact on, on your family as well. Thank you. Now I think every legislator, policy maker and educator should read Happiness in His Eyes. What's been the impact of the book? I'm not sure I can really measure the impact but certainly I've had numerous emails from people who've read Happiness in His Eyes and have contacted me and shared their response and it's been really heartwarming for me to hear from other parents. I think probably the most common response is people feel they're not alone and you know so often I had felt like that but the reality is that my book could be the story of so many families and when others read it they identify with so much that's in the book and and recognise we're not alone, there's others out there going through this. I've had teachers comment and therapists that it's been helpful for giving them insight into what it's actually like for the family living with a child like this all the time. One of Kevin's paediatricians actually commented that he thought that all medical students should read it. And I just know personally that whenever I read stories, I'm touched mm. and there are things I can identify with, there's things that are different. And I just hope that others continue to find something in this book that offers them support in some way. Not everyone who has a child with a disability is going to feel like they need to write a book mm. or um, may not feel articulate enough to do that. You are. So I think that's a really important thing that you can do is to tell your story in such a way that other people will feel encouraged and that Thank they're not, uh, not so isolated. Mm -hmm. So we've talked about disability, but your book is also a story of love. Mm -hmm. It's subtitled A Story of Love and Disability. Mm -hmm. We've talked about the disability. What motivates a, a mother to care for a child with a disability? Reflect for us on love and disability. <laughs> Barry, I don't really think there's much choice, you know, legally. And I think inherently, most mothers are compelled to care for their children, irrespective of their abilities. Once Matthew was about two years old, Michael and I decided we'd really like another child. And I had a very good pregnancy with Kevin. Um, I was so relieved to finally hold Kevin in my arms, had a strong bond from the very beginning, and I was determined, and still am, to care for each of our sons with the utmost of my ability. I would never have chosen to have had a child with a disability, but in no way has Kevin's disability reduced my love for him. I love each of our sons very dearly. Their needs are different, and so I respond accordingly. 
But, you know, I have often thought that I think the kudos should really go to the teachers and the therapists and those who choose to invest their lives in the people who have autism. You know, they choose to do this. When, when a mother has a child, you just, you just do it. But to actually choose to go and work, and not just work, but invest your life in this, I think that's really where credit is due. Yeah, those professionals can go home in the evening and they can have some relief from that from that situation, from the work that they do. Whereas for you, you're living with it 24 hours a day, aren't you? Mm, that is true. I mean, Kevin is at school, but yes, it is. I do often get home from work and think, ah, now I'm at my next job. Hmm. So you're sort of moving from one role to another Very constantly, much so. fluidly yes. throughout the day. Now, disability places enormous strain on families. Some survive, some become stronger, and some don't survive. Mm. What support is needed to ensure that parents can be effective in their role as carers mm -hmm. and that their own needs and needs of other siblings, siblings are also mm. met? The support needs for families who have members with disabilities are immense. You know, these families face all the challenges that regular families face, all the same pressures, financial, relationship, poor health, career, all those stresses and so many more, and those stresses are really exacerbated. In the month leading up to Kevin's diagnosis of autism, I had over 25 appointments. We had visual tests, had umpteen GP tests because he was having so many ear infections, specialist therapy appointments. We were already having therapy because the health system had recognised that this child needed input, even though we didn't actually have a diagnosis. And my days were consumed, they were busy, they were stressful. With the eventual diagnosis, I was shattered. And practical support from friends during that early stage was so helpful. We had a lot of meals dropped around and we, you know, it's that practical support in the early stage that just helps you to get through each day. And as the time has passed, our friends continue to support and in other ways. They've learned how to communicate with Kevin. As I've mentioned earlier, Kevin has never spoken, not a single word, but he can understand what we're saying if we speak slowly and use simple words, familiar words. And people are learning how to use photographs to show him where we're going and what we're doing. And he likes it when people take an interest in his photographs. I guess it's, you know, he can see that people are communicating with him and he likes to show people his books. Um, we have a lot of books that I've just made for him of photographs and he, he likes those. Um, and it actually, it means a lot to me too when people try to communicate with Kevin. And some have taken a special interest in our eldest son, Matthew. He plays guitar and we had friends who took him to a special guitar concert. We've had lots of friends who invite him to their place in the school holidays or just talk to Matthew and don't just ask me about Kevin, especially when Matthew's present. It's so important to remember the sibling. Very soon after Kevin's diagnosis, I had a good friend who offered to come to our home once a week for two hours to give me time for reading. And she looked after Kevin. And that was just such a useful, practical thing to do because 
When you get a diagnosis of autism or I am sure a diagnosis of any other disability or medical condition, the amount of information to absorb is overwhelming. Mm. And you're so busy anyway with a toddler and a baby that having time and energy to sit down and read in the day is just really not possible. So that was particularly helpful. We had other friends who cared for the boys so that Michael and I could attend an autism conference. Our parents were away overseas soon after that and there was an autism conference and it really meant a lot to us to get out of town to have a conference to start the kind of learning journey. Um, Someone else offered to come and babysit so Michael and I could have time because relationally we so need that time together. Others have acknowledged they know nothing about autism but that they're willing to learn and that means such a lot to have friends who are willing to walk the journey with you and learn, you know, to read books I recommend or to watch DVDs. And I appreciate the way that friends offer simple explanation to their own children because Kevin behaves very differently and they've learned to say just simple things like Kevin's brain works differently from ours and he can't understand everything we're saying but he still likes you to say hello and he makes those noises but that's okay and you know just just simple explanations because it can be quite scary for little children Mm. to see Mm. how Kevin's behaving and we've been gifted books music a marriage weekend away holidays we've really had generous thoughtful gifts and each one is so deeply appreciated another thing that means a lot to me is when we're out in public and people pretty quickly recognise that uh, Kevin has special needs and I really appreciate it when people just withhold their judgement. It's so easy for others to jump to conclusions and, you know, assume that we're bad parents and our child is poorly behaved and when people withhold judgement and just offer a little nod or an understanding smile, that goes a long way because, you know, unfortunately on our journey not all support has been beneficial. We've had um, sometimes when comments just really don't help and I'm sure they're never intentional but it has certainly erased the awareness for me to be careful with what I say because words do matter. I remember once a friend said, you know, just don't worry about Kevin. We all worry about our children. But that really minimised Kevin's condition. Mm. And it's true, we do all worry about our children. But we've had a lot more reason to worry about Kevin than we have for Matthew. Um, And someone else said, oh, he'll grow out of it. And it was well-meaning, but it absolutely isn't true. Autism is a lifelong condition. There is no cure. Um, And children do not grow out of it. And I I have realised that it's so much better to just say nothing than it is to say things that are untrue. So we need to be really sensitive to Mm, what we say and and, and its impact. What are some other things that um, have not really been uh, helpful? I think they are the main things. You know, there's been one or two times when children have said unhelpful comments, but I've not taken offence at that because I think a child often doesn't know better. And I've explained to the child, I said, oh, no, he's not stupid. He behaves like that, and this is why. Yes. Now we're going to ask you to reflect a little bit more about Kevin and uh, his impact on your life. What has Kevin taught you about life? its value, 
its meaning and its joys. One of my most difficult fears is that I may lose Kevin through a severe seizure. And although the risk of this is not high, it is still a very real possibility. And living daily with this reminds me to treasure life, to live here and now while we have it and make the most of life. As far as joys, you know, as I've mentioned in the earlier interview, at times Kevin is just so happy and we don't know why. He just laughs and I feel my spirits lifting. He might be having happy thoughts, he might have happy feelings, I don't know. But I'm learning to laugh with him and just rest in those moments with deep gratitude. Kevin will never be able to contribute in any financial or professional capacity to society. I look at Kevin sometimes with a very heartfelt gratitude that we live in New Zealand in a country that recognises Kevin's innate value and provides for his education and health and well-being. And although New Zealand is not a particularly Christian country, it has Christian roots. And I believe that this value for human life comes from our Christian heritage of our country. Each and every life is so precious in God's sight. And this is something I've often reflected on over the years. That it's so easy to think of someone as not having much worth, but every single person has immeasurable worth in God's eyes. And so mm. should in our eyes too. And I used to find it really hard to actually understand what the really big deal was about Jesus coming to earth to live. As humans, I don't think we can really grasp how vastly superior heaven was for Jesus or how brutally traumatic Christ's death was. However, I've often reflected on Kevin and thought, what if I was to become as disabled as he was. If I couldn't speak, had a profound intellectual disability, had frequent seizures and associated injuries and, and disorientation and heavily medicated. And when I start to think of that, that contrast, it really helps to give me a glimpse of the massive leap that Jesus made when he came from heaven to earth to be here with us. Do you know, all of us could be disabled tomorrow. Mm. It's, we know, none of us have any purchase on tomorrow, really, do we? No. We have no guarantees. No. So the experience of disability could be the lot of any one of us yes. uh, at any time. And um, I think it's really important to um, reflect on the value of life. I think mm. life means everything, doesn't it, mm. really, to us. And uh, when Jesus came, he came not only just to give us life now, but mm. also to give us eternal life. Yes. These are concepts that are just uh, so important. Does that really encourage and strengthen you to, to keep going on in relationship to Kevin? Absolutely. The hope that I have that one day there will be no more suffering, there will be no more pain, no more disability, no more seizures, you know, that for me is probably the number one biggest source of strength for the present. And, you know, I have the Holy Spirit here to comfort me. Now I have God's word full of promises. And to have that hope as well is just so, so helpful. I've often wondered 
how I would have managed without that hope that this is not all there is and that there will be a better way someday. I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Louise Inglis. We've been discussing Kevin, Louise's son, who is now 11, and the impact of Kevin's autism on his life and the lives of those closest to him. We'll go to a break now. When we come back, I'll be talking with Louise about her early life and her spiritual journey. If you have any questions or comments in relation to today's program, you can call 3ABN Australia Radio within Australia on 02 4973-3456 or from outside of Australia on country code 612-4973-3456 Our email address is radio at 3abnaustralia.org.au That is radio at the number 3ABN Australia all one word .org.au Our postal address is 3ABN Australia Inc. P.O. Box 752, Morissette, New South Wales, 2264, Australia. Thank you for your prayers and financial support. If you've just joined us, I'm Barry Harker and you're listening to Life Learnings on 3ABN Radio Network. My guest today is Louise Inglis, author of Happiness in His Eyes, A Story of Love and Disability. This is my second conversation with Louise. Louise has been talking about uh, Kevin, and now we're going to turn more to talk about Louise and her early life and her spiritual journey. Louise, tell me about where you were born and where you grew up. I was born in Auckland, and I've spent most of my life in Auckland. I still live in Auckland. And I have lovely parents, devoted Christians, have two younger brothers, and we attended church together as a family and my mum and dad were always very involved in church, contributed in as many ways as they could. Our home was always an open home. We've had a lot of people come into our homes for, for meals to stay. Mum and dad are very hospitable. I think one thing that impacted me quite a lot as a child was being involved with a program from our church called Kids of the Mount, and that was organised by Tom Robinson for children in the Glen Innes area who were growing up in poverty and were very needy, and on Friday nights we would go along and there would be music and there would be food for the children and there were significant um, role models were invited to come along and speak to the children and I think that opened my eyes to the difficulties that many people in life face in our very own city and you know I've, I've, I think back to that now sometimes and think how tired I am at the end of the week and think wow you know mum and dad and, and Tom and Wendy and those others were so um, had so much energy to go and do this every Friday night and help and we had some of those children come with us for holidays. Um, we used to go to a farm for holidays a lot and I think that's where my love of the outdoors began, walking over the hills and swimming in the rivers and riding on the horses and I've just 
had a lifelong love of the outdoors from from that young age. I went to a Christian school, primary school, and then I went to the local public high school, and I think that was good timing for me. I think as a 13-year-old it was good for me to start becoming a little bit more confident in myself as a Christian and what that meant. And um, I made some other really good friends there, some who were Christians, some who weren't, but I think it was a good time in my life for me to um, affirm Christianity for myself. I was baptised when I was 14, and in my final year of high school, I had a year in the States as an exchange student, and that was a very pivotal experience for me because I was not with mum and dad anymore. I had to be more independent. I was very homesick at times. I think that really cemented my walk with God because it was then that I really started having my own daily quiet time with God and praying and reading his scriptures and memorizing Bible verses that helped me through that time. It was an incredible time. I had lots of wonderful experiences, but it was also a challenging time because I was leaving home for the first time. Mm. And I had a lovely, lovely Christian um, couple that I lived with during that time, and they they just bent over backwards for me and took me to their church, and I went on youth camps and helped with summer camp and joined uh, youth groups and played in the local orchestra and went running with them and you know it was a very um, blessed time in my life. So you had a year away Mm. in the United States, where was that? Knoxville, Tennessee. Okay, down down south. south. Yes. Was was it just one family? Yes, yes, stayed with that couple the whole time. They didn't have children at that stage and so it was lovely because we could go out a lot and do lots of extra things that I never really did at home with two younger siblings and they enjoyed the outdoors too. We did lots of bushwalks, and it was, it was just such a blessed time. And I was so fortunate to be matched with them. It could have been an entirely different experience had mm. I been with a different people. After a year as an exchange student, what did you do then? Then I came home, and it was the middle of our school year. And at that stage, I really didn't want to go back and finish high school. I just you know, my friends had moved on because they had finished school and I worked for six months and I had a number of jobs and I decided I wanted to go to Avondale College and most of the jobs were quite boring and it really affirmed for me that I wanted to get some kind of education that would give me a more interesting job. And I had quite a few jobs. I worked at three kind of jobs part-time, did reception and office work and... I even sold Christian books door to door for a while and I don't remember that with fond memories. That was that was hard yards, but I did it and I uh, was quite happy to finish that. And then I went So this is reality, isn't it? This yeah. is this is life, making your way in life. So this is a, a good way to encourage you to get an education, isn't it? Absolutely. And it was a good way to teach me, you know, the value of money because, you know, I worked hard, I saved money, but it didn't come easily. I mean, some of the jobs are so boring. I remember looking at my watch every hour, kind of thinking, oh, there's another hour. Um, 
some of them I just realised it was not my cup of tea. I got a job as a courier driver around Christmas time in Auckland and the traffic was busy. And I'm usually one who will persist, but I did that for one day and resign. I hate this. I hate being in the traffic. And I had another courier job for two weeks, which was long distance. And that was great. I could just load up the van and drive and have the music on and off I'd go. So it was very good experience getting a variety of jobs. But then I was so good to get to college. And I had a wonderful four years at Avondale College. What did you do? I did a Bachelor of Education, majored in biology, minored in chemistry. And for me, it was just such an enriching time of life. I loved living on campus and having everything that I needed there. There was this swimming pool. There were nice bushwalks. I used to go cycling often. The library was right there. The church was there. All the classes were there. I didn't need to waste time traveling. I had my friends right there. I was able to really focus on my study because I wasn't spending lots of time commuting. And it was a time that I felt was very um, foundational for me in life. I really enjoyed being back in a Christian environment after having been at a public high school. And I was very impacted by some of the lecturers that I had. And I think they have really helped me become who I am. I hadn't studied chemistry properly at high school. I'd done a tiny little bit and then decided not to pursue it. And so it was so difficult then trying to pick up chemistry at tertiary level. And I often think back to the patience that my lecturers demonstrated and the extra mile and the way they helped me fill the gap. And there was just such a care. You know, even though I haven't gone on with the science teaching, the way that they taught me has and continues to affect the way that I live. I should say that um, where we are now at Morissette is just about four or five kilometres away from Avondale College. Yes. So coming back here... I hope has got lots of happy memories for you. It's so lovely to be back here. In fact, this morning I got up and I went for a bit of a run and I jogged around Avondale College and it's the first time I've been there for many, many years. And it was just like the last 20 plus years hadn't even been. I just felt like I was just back and had the same spring in my step and... It's, it's lovely to be back here. Now, after college, you taught for a couple of years. Yes, Tell me I about did. that. I got a job teaching biology and junior science at a college just out of Auckland. And it was in a rural spot, which I once again really enjoyed for the outdoor opportunities. Had a very good mentor. He was a science teacher who had been teaching for many, many years. He guided me so well. I felt like I did a good job with the teaching, but I I didn't like the huge amount of time that was required. I, and I guess that's partly my personality. I was so conscientious that I'd put so much time into it. And I used to sit sometimes in the staff room and look around at the staff and think, how, how do they do this teaching full time and juggle their families and balance their own needs? And... In the end, after two years, I did enough to to be registered. I thought, no, I think I I want something different. 
And I went, and I, I, to be honest, I had never actually known through my years at Avondale College whether teaching was really what I wanted to do. I just knew I wanted to be at college. Mm-hmm. Um, so I read a book called What Colour Is Your Parachute? I found that a most helpful book in helping me redefine what I wanted to do as a career and ended up settling on physiotherapy. And so I studied physiotherapy in Auckland. That took another four years. And then I worked in a couple of Auckland hospitals, worked in North Shore Hospital and Middlemore Hospital, just doing the basic rotations that new grads do. Worked in orthopaedics and neurology and women's health and respiratory and just just a whole variety of areas. And Michael and I married... Uh, just before I started work as a physiotherapy, I just finished the training. And so after just a couple of years of having done physiotherapy work, we started a family. And I guess that kind of brings you up to where we started our interview. The experience that you had growing up sounded very secure. Very much so. A very secure family. And I've often reflected on how grateful I am that I have had such a secure upbringing because I don't know how I would have managed the challenges without that. You know, I look back and I think I've had godly Christian parents who have prayed for and with us, who've shared their faith. You know, I remember as a child, like I guess all children do, getting bored with church and not understanding what it was all about and moaning to mum and she said to me something like you know this is a really meaningful part of my life and don't you feel anything from this connection with God and she just had something that I knew was real and I knew was tangible and I think that helped me to persist in that journey as a child that I wanted that for myself and you know, having that year as an exchange student and those years at college, they've given me such a strong foundation. And I guess in many ways it was a privileged upbringing with very little in the way of challenges. And so when the challenges came, they hit hard. And it mm. it has taken and continues to take, um, you know, resolve and determination to walk the journey. Tell me about your mother. She's a very pivotal figure in the book. Yes, she's a very pivotal person in my life, and I think in the lives of many people. She is a most generous person with her time, and she's got such a heart for people. She worked as a social worker for a short period of time. She worked as a nurse. She lost her own mother when she was just 12, and that was a very sudden and unexpected death when they were living in um, Africa. Her mother died from malaria. And, you know, that was just an awful experience for mum and her sister and um, their dad. And I think that has given her a very deep compassion and understanding. And to this day, she continues to be just giving of her time and helping so many people. And my dad too, although he doesn't feature as much in the book and he's a quieter person by nature, I have a very strong bond with dad and in many ways we're very similar. And he has been like a rock and he's been so 
helpful at a practical level. He's done lots of things around our house. Having a child with a disability means there's lots of little modifications that are needed and he's done so much to help us and still does. Um, so I, I'm very, very blessed by the parents that I have. Louise, I would like to thank you so much for talking with me over the last couple of hours. Um, I know that um, this is a uh, difficult situation for you to talk about and uh, I really appreciate your willingness to, uh, to come to the studios and to talk with me on your visit to Australia. I hope you have a lovely time here. You have uh, great memories of the uh, Kurumbong area and that you have a really good break while you're away Thank from you. New Zealand. Thank you for the book too. I really appreciated reading the book, the opportunity to uh, get a perspective from a parent who's um, articulate and able to explain exactly what they're feeling and, un and, uh, and going through at the time. I think it's a great book. I think it's a, a wonderful book for people to read, particularly if you have a person with a disability in the family. It gives you an appreciation for what people are going through and how to provide support and hope to people. So all the best for the future. Thank you so much for um, happiness in his eyes. Thank I you. hope there's a second book and Thank possibly you. a third book as well. Thank you down so much. The track. And all the best for Kevin. I know that... Thank you, Barry. <clears throat> I realise that he's facing some really serious challenges yes. with, the, with the epilepsy. So I hope the future is kinder to him. Thank you. Thank you very much. So, Thanks for the opportunity to share. So thank you for coming in today. God bless you. And um, I hope that uh, when you come back to Australia, you might come in and have another talk with us and bring us up to date on what's happening in your thank life you. and in Kevin's life as well. That would well. be an honour. Thank you. Would you like to close our conversation with prayer? Sure, I'd be delighted to. Let's bow our heads. We just thank you, God, that you promise that one day there will be no more suffering. There will be no more sickness, no more death, no more pain. And we look forward to that day so much. We don't quite know how that's going to happen. We certainly don't know when, but we believe you and, and we thank you for this hope. And I just pray in the name of Jesus that your Holy Spirit will really comfort and strengthen those who are struggling with disability in some way whether it's because they themselves have a disability or they're caring for someone with a disability. I pray that they will be strengthened, they will have hope, and they will be able to move on more confidently. And we just thank you that your spirit is so real and does strengthen and guide us. And I just thank you, loving Father, that you provide all our needs. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Louise. I'm Barry Harker and this is Life Learnings. I've been talking with Louise Inglis, author of Happiness in His Eyes, A Story of Love and Disability. Remember to tune in again next time as I speak with another fascinating guest on Life Learnings. Until then, bye for now and God bless you and keep you. You've been listening to a production of 3ABN Australia Radio. One of the great invitations of the Bible is found in Matthew 7 and verses 7 and 8. Ask, and it shall be given you. Seek, and ye shall find. Knock, and it shall be opened unto you. For every one that asketh receiveth, and he that seeketh findeth, and to him that knocketh it shall be opened. In any time of need we can ask God for help. If we ask in faith, he will hear us. 
If you are suffering moments of distress or despair, why not ask God to help you? Talk to God like you would talk to a friend and tell him your need. May God bless you as you consider this gracious invitation.
Sheep May Safely Graze, played by John Geraghty and Simeon Wood.